This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. This work was the only opera its composer ever completed. It's considered to be a masterwork of 20th century innovation based on the symbolist play by Maurice Metterlink. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Debussy's Pelias et Melisande. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. In 1902, Claude Debussy said, For a long time I have been striving to write music for the theater, but the form in which I wanted it to be was so unusual that after several attempts, I've given up on the idea. But once Debussy discovered the plays of Maurice Maeterlinck, he knew he found the perfect libretto for his musical ideas. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode, we have Guild lecturer Jeffrey Langford exploring the revolutionary style of Debussy's music and the unique performance history of his only stage work. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Nice to be back with you again uh, for my one and only appearance here this, uh, this season. Uh, the textbook that I'm working on has co-opted so much of my time that I have really not been able to do too much here. Uh, but this is an opera I simply could not pass up. And so I just had to uh, accept the invitation to talk about Pelias. So one of the great ironies about Pelias is that Claude Debussy, who so desperately lamented the influence of Wagner in France in the late 19th century and who really wanted to establish some kind of a unique French style should, in fact, have come so close to Wagner when it comes time to write his one and only opera. Or did he? <laughs> that's the question. So that's what we're going to try to figure out today. And to show you what I'm talking about, I'm going to give you a little quiz that I give my students at the Manhattan School of Music. Now, this isn't fair because you know what we're here to talk about. But I can get up in front of a class at Manhattan School of Music without telling them what I'm talking about on that particular day. And I can say, we're doing a guessing game on opera. I give you the hints, you give me the opera. So here are the hints. I'm thinking of an opera that has no arias, no duets, no choruses, and no ensembles. This opera also has an elaborate system of leitmotifs. And this opera has a kind of semi-melodic, quasi-recitative-like vocal style. And lastly, the story of this opera is one that serves as a metaphor for some kind of deeper, more philosophical message. So what's the opera gang? And everybody says, Wagner, the ring cycle. That's the perfect answer. Now, it also happens to be true of Pelias, and that's why I find it so ironic that we uh, find ourselves in this situation. So let's start by looking at a little of W.C.'s background. Not a whole lot, not a big life story, but just the essentials. First of all, he entered the Paris Conservatory at the age of 10 uh, with the intent of becoming the next great pianist in France. This didn't work out so well because he never won any of the Grand Prix in piano. So as a result, he was forced to shift his attention from the piano to composition at which he was much more successful, winning the big Prix de Rome in 1884. 
Now, the Prix de Rome, of course, is the big composition contest that the French government runs or did run. I guess they're still running it every year. The winner of the composition contest gets sent off to Rome to study for a couple of years and then is given a five-year stipend to get his or her career going. So Debussy is packed off to Rome and studies there for a while. And in the summers, he makes pilgrimages to Bayreuth. This was the period in Debussy's life when he, like every other French composer, was an ardent Wagnerite, a real major supporter of Wagner. Um, but then there's a turnaround. Sort of the, this, these pilgrimages to Bayreuth are in the mid-1880s. And then toward the, the end of the decade, Debussy suddenly decides that, hmm, maybe this isn't right, this sort of idolatry of Wagner. And so he said finally, figuring this out for himself, quote, after some years of pilgrimages to Bayreuth, I began to have doubts about the Wagnerian formula, or rather, it seemed to me that it was of use only in the particular case of Wagner's own genius. So, in other words, he's basically saying we should stop imitating Wagner. Now, that leads us then, of course, to the usual explanation for Debussy, which is that he is an Impressionist. Now, the Impressionist label for Debussy makes a certain amount of sense. It implies that Debussy was somehow or other connected to those great French Impressionist painters, Manet, Monet, Renoir, and people like that. And certainly, those are painters, all of whom revolutionized art in the late 19th century in France, with the use of new, vibrant color, and what I would call sort of a fuzzy approach to depiction, which is to say an avoidance of literal representation. And that avoidance of literal representation is done through the avoidance of line, demarcation. As you all know, you can go see in a, a French Impressionist painting at the Met, the other Met, um, and what is it up close? It's just a bunch of blobs of color. It isn't until you get far enough back that the blobs of color begin to merge into an object of some kind. But if you look up close, there are no straight lines. There's no anywhere. Now, all of this has some relationship to Debussy's music, certainly. His music is colorful. His orchestration in particular is extremely colorful, so that correlates. And in addition to that, Debussy's music is formally fuzzy, like the painting, uh, which is to say he avoids sort of strict set forms and prefers forms that are malleable and infinitely adjustable somehow or other. So all of this makes sense, and that's why we call him an Impressionist. But Debussy himself hated being labeled an Impressionist. I'm not sure exactly why. It could be that the term Impressionism in Paris at the time was a derogatory term arising out of an exhibition in early 1880s, 1883, I think, where um, the first exhibition with a painting called Sunrise, colon, an Impression, uh, led to then the labeling of all this school of painting as Impressionist. Um, so maybe he didn't want to be associated with that derogative term. Maybe he simply doesn't want to be called a copycat. In any case, he loathed being called an Impressionist. He preferred to be called a symbolist. So now we have to look at what's the connection to symbolist poetry. Um, that is, Debussy was a big fan of the poetry of Stefan Mallarmé and uh, poets like that. And here, the connection, I think, is that symbolist poetry is a reaction to uh, verismo, realism, at the end of the 19th century, so that rather than a kind of brutal depiction of reality, symbolism prefers to hint at reality through the use of symbols and metaphors. Uh, and that certainly works. That's how Peleos works, in fact. And so to call Peleos a symbolist opera or W.C. a symbolist composer, hmm, it works. It's certainly true. But when you come to the bottom line in talking about influences in W.C.'s life, you will discover that symbolist poetry and Impressionist painting are not the whole story. In fact, a lot of what Debussy used to what I call exorcise the spirit of Wagner from his music was really non-Western influences. The first of these comes from Russia, where Debussy toured as part of a piano trio when he was a student at the conservatory. He had a piano trio. 
And Tchaikovsky's patroness, Nadezhda von Meck, grabbed a hold of Debussy, heard the piano trio, and said, why don't you come to Russia with me this summer and give some concerts? And by the way, while you're there, you can teach my kids how to play the piano. So he did. And while he was in Russia, he was exposed to, of course, the music of Tchaikovsky, because Nadezhda von Meck was Tchaikovsky's patroness. But he probably also came into contact with the music of Rimsky-Korsakov, um, Muzorsky, and the other so-called Mighty Five, uh, the famous Russian nationalist composers. And what did he hear in this music? Number one, he heard some of the most colorful orchestration that had happened anywhere in Europe at that time. Um, about the only other composer who was as colorful an orchestrator as Rimsky-Korsakov, for instance, was Berlioz, way, way earlier in the century. And it's curious, I've always wondered about this, where did the Russians get their interest in colorful orchestration? It's from Berlioz, I'm sure of it, because Berlioz made tours through Russia, giving concerts in Russia in the 1840s. So anyway, be that as it may, the colorful orchestration is one thing. The other thing that Debussy surely heard in the music of these uh, Russian nationalist composers was some unusual scale patterns like octatonic and whole tone. And these are scales, let me just move to the piano for a second. These are different than your usual seven note diatonic scales. An octatonic scale is a combination of alternating whole and half steps, so you get this. You see? unusual scale. And whole tone, of course, is just nothing but whole tones, no half steps in the scale, so. And these scales and the harmonies associated with them are all over the music of the Mighty Five. And these are things that he would not have heard in any Western European music, including Wagner. And so it becomes the first source of a kind of Wagner antidote, a way of counteracting Wagner. Now, the other important non-Western influence, of course, was Javanese music. And this means something that Debussy came across at the Paris Exhibition Universelle in 1889, which was a kind of gigantic world's fair, where countries from all over the world contributed examples of their art and culture. And so Debussy goes to the Paris exhibition, and he hears a Javanese gamelan orchestra. In fact, that's redundant. Gamelan means orchestra, so sorry about that. A Javanese gamelan. Um, and what he heard was extraordinarily different from anything that he could possibly have heard in Wagner. And one of the things I would do, I'm going to play you a sample of this kind of music. I'm going to ask you, how, in what way is this not Wagner in terms of melody, rhythm, harmony, um, meter, etc., etc. So let's take a listen to about a minute of some Javanese gamelan. Now, so the question is, can you sing the tune? <laughs> no, obviously not. Um, can you tell what the meter is? Is it 4-4-3-4-6-8? Who knows, <laughs> right? You can't tell. Um, can you tell what key it's in? No. Um, what about the timbre? What are those instruments? Pitched metallic percussion instruments, mostly with some wind instruments thrown in to, to the batch. Um, very strange, not like anything you'd find in Western Europe. And then lastly, what's the form of this? Well, you didn't hear enough to be able to tell if there's a form, but it just goes on and on like that. Um, there is, by the way, a structure to gamelan music. Um, it's not totally formless, but from our point of view as we're listening to it, it sounds formless. So in regards to all those things that are important for German music, you know, theme, the development of theme, form, key, all that sort of thing, theme. None of it is in this music. So Debussy is then able to use the Javanese gamelan influence to build his anti-Wagnerian style.
All right, so all of this is good. But despite all of these external influences that he can draw upon to create something that's going to exorcise the spirit of Wagner from his music, when it came time to write an opera, suddenly Debussy finds himself trapped. He is again falling back into the the Wagner world, as it were. Um, So what we want to do is look at this one and only opera, Peleus and Melisande. Um, It is based on a symbolist play, uh, by Maurice Maeterlinck, which Debussy read in 1892 and decided immediately he had to set it to music. Uh, it took him a while to get from the first stages to the final stages of the opera, so it did not debut until 1902, an entire decade later. Um, and this is, as I said, his one and only opera. Although, by the way, Debussy did consider seriously setting other librettos. He simply could never find one he really liked. And my favorite of all the WC potential operas that never happened is one based on Edgar Allan Poe's Fall of the House of Usher, of all things. Very strange. So in any case, he takes Maeterlinck, um, which is a symbolist drama. And the symbol here is darkness. And that symbol is played out in the opera and in the play in various kinds of darkness. That is, blind, being lost, Um, being unaware, um, a forest that uh, admits no sunshine. These are all the various symbols throughout the play and the opera uh, that contribute to this theme of uh, blindness or darkness. Uh, So the action here unfolds in an unspecified place called Alamon, all the world. So right away it's fuzzy, right? And when does it take place? Eh, Who knows? in the past. So again, it's fuzzy. So right at the outset of the drama, everything is rather vague, just like the whole idea of symbolism, unspecific. And by the way, that applies also to the ring cycle. It too is fairly unspecific in regards to those things. So anyway, as the opera opens, Prince Golo, who is a middle-aged man, is lost in the forest. He's hunting, and he's lost in the forest. First sign of darkness. He stumbles into a young woman named Melisande, who is about half his age, and who is also lost. Upon questioning her about who she is and how she came to be lost in the forest, um, she says almost nothing, Uh, which is to say she is herself lost and confused. So, at the end of the first scene, or after the first scene, some large time elapses, and at the beginning of the next scene, Golot brings Melisande home to his castle as his wife. So we've made a lot of progress over that short little intermission. Um, When she comes to the castle, she meets the old blind king, Arkel, blind again, darkness, blindness, and she meets Peleos's younger half, uh, sorry, she meets Golo's younger half-brother, Peleos. Um, Peleos and Melisande then are about the same age because she is much younger than Golo. The two of them spend a lot of time together, and they are actually falling in love with one another, although they are totally unaware of it. Again, this whole business of being blind and in dark, in the dark. Um, until the very end of the opera, uh, when... Peleos decides he has to leave permanently. And he does so because his older half-brother pretty much tells him to keep away from his wife. All right, so fine. So he decides he has to leave. But before he leaves, he has to meet Melisande one more time. And so they arrange a rendezvous late at night after everybody's asleep out in the woods someplace. Again, out in the dark, etc. And at that rendezvous, they finally recognize that they're in love with one another, and they actually say so. But Golo, being suspicious about the whole thing, is also out there hiding in the bushes, and he jumps out of the bushes with his sword, kills his half-brother, and wounds his wife, who then dies uh, just after giving birth to a child. End of happy story. Okay, so this is the the symbolic symbolic thing, and that's the, the basic plot synopsis. Now, um, before writing this opera, uh, 
WC set out an operatic credo, which is on your handout. So let's take a look at this. There were four items on this credo, and I'm going to talk about them in reverse order. So let's look at number four. This is what WC had to say about the whole subject of leitmotifs. In Wagner's works, each character has, one might say, his own calling card, his leitmotif, which must always precede him. I must confess that I find this somewhat, uh, this procedure somewhat gross and obvious. A character should not be a slave to his leitmotif like a blind man is a slave to his dog. All right, so Debussy's pulling no punches here about this. And then the other one, number three, about symphonic development, he says, music in opera is far too predominant. I love that. I always thought opera was music. But to have someone tell you that music is far too predominant, right away you're going to perk up and say, what the hell is he talking about? A prolonged symphonic development will always be at odds with the fluidity of the dramatic action. I have endeavored to rem render the successive impulses and moods of the characters as they are produced without making laborious efforts to follow a symphonic development, which by its very nature will sacrifice emotional development to an arbitrary musical design. So this too is a big swipe at Wagner, because what he's claiming is that Wagner's operas are symphonic the way a Beethoven symphony is symphonic. That is, they follow a logical musical design and structure. You might even say that a Wagner opera is like a gigantic uh, Beethoven symphony development section uh, where you've got themes that are broken up into bits and pieces, uh, modulated, fragmented, et cetera, et cetera, developed, essentially. So Debussy says that's the problem, that that kind of a musical structure, which has a logic of its own, cannot possibly be fluid enough to catch the infinite subtleties in the drama and the changes of moods and emotions in the drama. So he's rejecting this idea of a kind of symphonic musical design in favor of something more fluid. Okay. Now, so those are the two important things, first two important things. So let's take a look at this. The first thing is regarding the light motifs. Debussy was very proud of the fact that he could claim that his opera had no light motifs. That, however was fake news. <laughs> it was a deliberate distortion of the truth because, in fact, his opera is loaded with light motifs. The very opening of the opera starts with this motif. That's the forest motif. And then Golo actually has two motifs of which I only gave you one, and the one that I've got here is this one. All right, and then Melisande's motif when she comes in is this one. So those are the motifs. Those are some of the motifs. Now, how are they different from Wagner? Here's the, I think, the important point. That Wagner is intent upon making his motifs perfectly clear and obvious. There's nothing more in your face than something like the Siegfried motif. ba ba dum ba dum ba you can't miss it, right? Debussy's motifs seem to be designed to be disguised. That is to say, they have such a low melodic profile that you would never guess that this was a motif. That's a motif. Or the next one, the Golo motif, even worse. That's not a motif. Well, it is because it keeps coming back through the opera all the time. But it's not one that you would ever recognize. So it's no wonder that critics, once they were told by the composer himself that there were no leitmotifs, all chimed in after the first performance and said, yes, sir, there's not a leitmotif in the whole opera. This is not like Wagner at all. 
So he pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. Now, in the process, instead of a kind of symphonic development of the leitmotifs, as in Wagner, what you get is more like a simple repetition of unaltered leitmotifs. So Debussy spends a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to figure out how not to develop his melodic material. Because developing your melodic material is Western European German tradition. That's what the Germans do. So he's not going to do that. In fact, by the way, the manuscript of the score shows that in Act 4, he was working through one of the scenes in Act 4, got about halfway through and crossed out the whole thing and threw it away and started over again. And why? Because what you see in the sketches is him developing his motifs, his materials. And he suddenly realized that, I think, I don't know, I didn't talk to him, but I think he probably realized that and said, oh my God, ripped it out and threw it away and started over again. So he's clearly intent upon not developing. So what does he do instead? He repeats. And when he repeats, here's an example of how these repetitions work. This is the second of the Golo motifs. And the basic motif is... So that's the idea. But when it appears, it appears always in a disguised harmonization, a reharmonization, which is to say he's like taking the basic idea and redressing it, new clothing for the same person. So the person is the same, Golo is the same in every case, but the first one, the first one sounds like this, a bunch of seventh chords. which sounds totally different from bottom line right-hand side, which is the same tune, but totally different harmonization, and we get this. And what is that? That's a whole tone harmonization of the same theme. So clearly, I don't know, are you going to recognize that those are the same motifs redressed? You know, if I come back, uh, if I take an intermission and come back dressed in blue jeans and a sweatshirt, are you going to be able to tell it's me? Yeah, you probably would. But in any case, you get the idea that redressing it sort of helps disguise the whole thing. So that's the difference between the light motifs and the symphonic development of one and the other. It's time for you to listen to something. Too much of my talking, not enough music. So I'm going to have a little sample of the opening of the opera, because this is where you hear all these motifs at the very beginning. And I want you to sort of listen to this and ask yourself, would you have ever recognized that these were actually motifs? So here's the very opening of scene one, Golo Lost in the Forest.
We'll come back to this in just a moment. <clears throat> so you see how these motifs work. They're very, I call them low profile. Now let's go on to the other elements, rhythm and melody. So he says about rhythm, music has a rhythm whose force shapes the musical development. The rhythm of the soul, however, is quite different, more instinctive and controlled by many events. In the conflict between these two kinds of rhythm, that is musical rhythm and rhythm of the soul, either the music stifles itself by chasing after a character or the character has to sit still on a note to allow the music to catch up to him. Now, that's a rather convoluted way of saying something which I will try to translate from the translation. Um, I think what he's trying to say is that music has a rhythm which tends to be repetitive. For instance, etc., etc., right? There's a kind of instance of a repetitive rhythm creating a melodic line. That's musical rhythm. But he says there's a different kind of rhythm, a rhythm of the soul, which is far more flexible and infinitely less repetitive. And basically he says there's a conflict between the two. In other words, if you have a character who is constantly changing moment by moment in what he or she feels or thinks, then and you're stuck with a rhythm that's a musical rhythm, how can you possibly interpret the changes in the character with a musical rhythm that won't change? That's basically what he's saying. Okay, so, melody. It must be understood that melody or song is one thing and that lyrical expression is another. It is illogical to think that one can make a fixed melodic line, like that Verdi aria, hold the innumerable nuances through which a character passes. I want the vocal expression to remain lyrical without being absorbed by the orchestra. All right, so here's two things going on. First of all, he's saying he doesn't want song. And I think when he said, by the way, back there that uh, music is too prominent in opera, what he's talking about is too much song, too many songs. Doesn't want that. So that's what he's trying to get away from. And instead, he wants some kind of a music that is, again, more flexible and more responsive to the instant changes in the characters and what they're thinking and feeling. Um, and then the last thing there about the orchestra, of course, is another swipe at Wagner. When you listen to Wagner, of course, the orchestra is so prominent. Uh, waves of orchestral sound wash over you in the theater, uh, and you can't help but be just washed away by it all. W.C. Uh, is trying to suggest that there's another approach to the use of the orchestra. Okay, so what we're going to look at now is the whole subject of rhythm. Um, when he's talking about rhythm that is non-repetitive, what he's talking about is creating a rhythm that's not a musical rhythm, but rather a rhythm of speech, a speech rhythm. And for W.C. that would be the rhythm of the French language. Now he is aided in this creation of a speech rhythm by the fact that the libretto he is setting is a prose libretto, not a poetic libretto. And it's important to remember that prior to this date in opera, almost every libretto ever written is always in poetry. All the Italian opera librettos of Verdi and everybody else, they're poetry. That's a whole other subject. But like all poetry, they have an implied rhythm. Just like Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There's a rhythm implied in that. In prose, of course, there is no implied rhythm. And so Debussy is helped by the fact that he's setting a prose libretto. So what he's going to do is try to set rhythms that imitate the French language. So the first one here, when Golo says here, Je ne pourrai plus sortir de cette forêt. Je ne pourrai plus sortir de cette forêt. And the rhythm that he's marked, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, is exactly the... You know, if my French were better, I could rip it off for you. But it is basically, je ne pourrai plus sortir, je ne pourrai plus sortir. It is da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. So it's perfectly in keeping. The next one, when he says here that he also thinks he is, he's lost as well, je crois que je me suis perdu moi-même. Je crois que je me suis perdu, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, moi-même. Perfect. And then he finds Melisande, and he sings, Una petite fille qui pleure au bord de l'eau. Una petite fille qui pleure au bord de l'eau. 
da 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 di da 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 And the last one, elle ne m'entend pas. It's simple, elle ne m'entend pas. So it is everywhere the rhythm of the language, the rhythm of the way the language would be spoken. Now, there are some tricks in this. There are some decidedly hidden traps. Uh, for instance, una petite fille. If I were to erase the text and just go to the piano and play that rhythm, it would come out da da ya da 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 And the downbeat after the bar line on the petite, that's the strong one. Now, of course, if you were to sing it that way, you'd get una petite fille, which is all wrong. Nobody says petite, it's petite. And so Debussy was criticized at great length about the setting of his poetry and the setting of the French text. And the person who criticized him the most was Strauss, Richard Strauss, who was himself at the time trying to write Salome in French because Salome was written in French by Oscar Wilde. And so Strauss is struggling with the French, and he can't figure it out because he's a German, he doesn't know anything about French. And so he writes to his good French friend, the novelist Romain Roland, and he gives him a whole bunch of examples like this. He says, this looks all wrong. You know, how's this possible? And Roland finally writes back in a really exasperated way, beginning the letter with something like, oh, you Germans, you really do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things he says is, the bar line in Debussy means nothing. So you pretend the bar line is not there. It is da-da-da-da-da-dee-da-da-da-da-da-da. There is no bar line. There is no accent. So if you're playing or singing Debussy with accents, you're singing it like Wagner. You're singing it like Beethoven. You're singing it like Brahms uh, or Schubert. It's, you know, in French, in Debussy's music, the bar line is nothing. Forget about them. Um, okay, so that's kind of the essence of the business of rhythm. Now, let's take another look at where we left off in scene one. You will get right at the beginning most of these musical examples that I wrote out for you here. So let's see what they actually sound like in performance. <laughs> Oh, 
So you get a pretty good idea of how this works. Now, Wagner also was afraid of song, and his whole operatic revolution was based on, again, the elimination of songs, duets, ensembles, and choruses, and things like that, and the substitution of what he called Sprechgesang, or speech song, which seems to me to be sort of like this. But I'm curious, would you say that this melodic writing, the vocal writing itself, does that sound like Wagner? No? We're going to get mostly no's on that? This is an interesting question. How similar is the actual melodic writing of Debussy and Wagner? One of the things I think is different is certainly the rhythm, because Wagner was not working with a prose libretto. He was working with his own poetic librettos, and they have a kind of inherent rhythm to them. And so that's going to make it sound different. But just from a strictly pitch point of view, I don't know. It's something I'll have to look at sometime. Um, I always kind of listen to it and think, is it? Is it not? Is it? I'm not sure. But certainly the rhythm is not. Um, but it is this kind of continual sprechgesang or quasi-melodic, arioso-type writing, um, which hardly ever breaks into a tune. And some people find this incredibly frustrating. Um, I know my students at Manhattan School of Music do not like this opera. This is one of their least favorite lectures about this opera. And they all tell me the same thing. Oh, if only I had a tune. Now, speaking of tunes and whatnot, I'm going to share with you now one of my favorite parts of this opera in Act 4. This is the big... I'll call it the love duet, where they meet outside of the palace late at night uh, for him to say goodbye to Melisande, and they suddenly realize that they're in love with each other. Um, this is essentially a love duet. And if you think about operatic love duets, there's almost a kind of universal approach to a love duet, which is to say that it's full of, I'll call it vein-popping 
or vocal ecstasy. You know, the soprano and the tenor at the top of their lungs. I'm thinking, for instance, of um, Tosca, for instance, uh, in the beginning of Tosca, where um, uh, Tosca comes in, she's jealous, she's suspicious of what Cavaradossi is doing, and they finally get together and they have this wonderful love duet. And it's a thrilling Puccini-like love duet. And the two of them are screaming over the orchestra, which is also screaming. And it's heart-thumping, passionate stuff. This is a love duet, which is a declaration of war on opera, on basic Italian and German opera. Because this is a duet in which you don't have the orchestra pounding away. In fact, the, the reason Debussy, despite the fact that he has adopted so many Wagnerian techniques, the reason the opera does not sound like Wagner, despite all the things I listed for you, is because the textures are so transparent and the orchestra is so subtle and, most important of all, the use of silence. Debussy was not afraid to use silence that is, to let the orchestra stop playing altogether. Now watch in a little excerpt from this scene how the orchestra will stop. And then the most important place where it stops is where he says to her, je t'aime. And she says, je t'aime aussi. And there isn't a sound behind that. It is just the opposite of Puccini, just the opposite of Wagner, just the opposite of Verdi. It is a marvelous, as I say, declaration of war against operatic love duets. So let's watch this. So watch how many times the orchestra is not playing. is just not, not there for a lot of this. And then here's something interesting. like almost a melody. But it's gone as soon as it happens, like a snowflake that melts on your hand. Ta voix, ta 
Is this really, does it fall into the Wagner trap or not? Is it a, despite, with, with all those things that I listed for you that are clearly Wagnerian, it doesn't sound like Wagner. So Debussy has somehow or other successfully taken all the ingredients of a Wagner opera and created something anti-Wagnerian. So he has, in fact, somehow or other now exorcised the spirit of Wagner from his work. So it's the chef's not the ingredients, like the elements of both Wagner and Debussy are the same. You know, the melodic style, the lack of arias, the ensembles that are missing, the choruses that are missing, um, the leitmotifs, all of those are the elements. So it'd be like giving me a pile of ingredients, giving the same pile of ingredients to Bobby Flay, and then see what comes out. And it'll be, I guarantee, something totally different. And that's essentially what we have here. Two operas that are totally different, molded out of the same materials, essentially. The same ideas, or the same operatic philosophies, in a way. Now, clearly, the orchestra is the big deal. That's the, that's the deal breaker. Because in Wagner, the orchestra is everything. Everything that's important is in the orchestra. That's less so with Debussy, and that's partly why... They come out so different. All right, I thank you all for your attention, and I hope you enjoy the opera when you hear it. That was Jeffrey Langford talking about Debussy's Pelias et Melisande. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platform to keep up with all things opera. Our next episode will feature two special guests, soprano legend Harolyn Blackwell and Broadway veteran Robin Payne, exploring connections between opera and musical theater, issues of race and diversity across both art forms, and advice they would share with young singers beginning their careers in the arts. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you so much for listening.